So, hi, thank you for some very interesting talks. I, I kind of have, I guess, a confusing, confused and general question to seven of many Ross and Bruce, and probably to Andrew too, and so it's less about passwords. <laughs> um, okay. I, I, both of those are some very interesting insights. I've disputed parts of both of them. I think there's a kind of naive political economy in some of this, which is, I think, needs a lot more sophistication in terms of, and I think that's being done. I think this, this idea that none of this is being done is, in my community, in Spain, so we've been talking about nothing but this for the last 20 years, actually. We've talked nothing but the combination of things together to make the picture. And that's, and I think, you know, maybe if no one's been paying attention to us, that's maybe our problem, it's maybe everybody's problem too. Um, but I think also there's a danger in that, in, in trying to, uh, the same danger I kind of think people would bring up with me, uh, is, is that there's a history here which is not quite as simple as there was some, then there was a sudden transformation of the internet. The NSA has been doing, or trying to do these things even before the internet, and let's not forget the whole season of inquiry in the 1970s, where the NSA was found to be tapping Americans' communications, many different kinds of Americans, not just a few targeted ones, but a massive number of people. In fact, all student leaders, for example, in America, um, in conjunction with the FBI, which is why we have a federal intelligence surveillance court. Um, so these things are not 100% new. The involvement of private companies in the NSA dates right back to the beginning of the NSA. They couldn't operate their machines to go pay without private companies. They were actually in there, in the bases, operating the company, the machines. So, I think, yes, there has been a transformation. It's been one of scale, uh, and it's been one of, yes, network effects as well. But there's also, network effects don't just, they don't, they're not just emergent. In the sense. There isn't just network effects. There's a political economy that has to do with not just fear and not just convenience, but profit. I mean, let's not forget, you know, the big word, the big C, capitalism. I mean, this is a very, very important thing driving lots of these things. It's not thing comes out of the network effect, it's driven. So these, there, there's some point there are things that go in, they go into a network and something comes out. Um, but yeah, it's very good, I'm very confused about this, but I have a number of things I said. So just comments and just throw that comment. So I do have this question, I have no idea why. Either you want to want to I have no argument with any of that. I mean, I, I was simplifying for five minutes, but yes, yeah. I mean, certainly the surveillance industrial complex, uh, which is a name I'll use for it, is is very important. The use of, of contractors here, the lobbying, it, it all it does all feed on each other. And yeah, I mean, and, and I think that the seventies are, are are definitely a good piece of history to see sort of what happened before. I do think this rise of of the separation of the community. The last separation of the communications channel, the physical layer, and, and the more semantic layers is, is also a big driver of what's happening today. Well, the thing that surprised me when I um, wrote the Wise Pepper and then circulated early versions of it was finding that in the international relations community, there was essentially no awareness of network effects. And, um, you know, people found that this was exciting, disturbing. So there is clearly a gap between how we understand economics and how DC understands economics. Uh, Peter mentioned in his report and also here that um, the, um, the people on the left coast all think that Snowden was a whistleblower and the people on the right coast all think that he's a traitor. You know, the, the dichotomy goes deeper than that. It's about fundamental understandings of how the world works. And at least if we can get to the point where we are all trying, 
more or less understanding the world in the same terms, then perhaps we, we can have better conversations mm -hmm. with, with the people of power. I'd briefly respond. I mean, it's just briefly, Washington isn't just Washington. It's, I mean, the bunch of sure. Parts. The site for the last 10 years on network effects and international relations theory. So there's a bunch of people. She was Hillary Clinton's policy advisor. So it's a little, there, there's, there's themes that they, they probably don't get it nearly as well as, as you do. I wanted to, because um, no one sort of surfaced this at the conference, um, instead of me being a critic of the NSA, um, to be sympathetic to their problems for a minute. Because I think voicing that here might be a little bit helpful uh, to, to, so um, they have a series, they and the surveillance industrial complex in general has a series of challenges. The military budget in the U.S. is going to go down a lot now that Iraq and Afghanistan ground wars are reducing. Uh, you can cheer for every one of these things, Gene, and that's just great. But I'm just, I'm just, uh, another uh, thing is, uh, if, if what I'm writing is correct, that a lot of their secrets are going to come out. Um, then uh, their weaknesses will become known in a lot more ways. They, uh, I've criticized their going dark rhetoric because it's just so bizarre to think they were arguing for going dark when they were doing all this stuff, right? Just really beyond bizarre. However, um, the multiplicity of communications channels uh, and the multiplicity of providers means that their cozy relationship with AT&T is a diminishing fraction of the universe. And there's going to just going to be lots of stuff when they want it and think they need it, and even have a warrant, they're not going to get it. And then if, if Bruce and Ross and I are helpful in having defense win over offense, encryption is going to spread a lot more like Gmail and rest. Um, and so uh, uh, it, it may be that uh, a series of their network advantages that they've lived on since 2001 are really getting undermined. The things that made the network so powerful so that even India signed up might not be nearly as powerful between now and 10 or 20 years from now. And so, as, as everyone's projecting out to the future, um, thinking about the responses from their world given these challenges, uh, you know, if it's a game theory of we're on the outside criticizing, they're on the inside of the power. What are their responses going to be? And a lot of their responses are going to be. Uh, based on them feeling like they can't do things they used to be able to do, uh, uh, even when they really think they've got it right. So I just offered that as a thought for everyone. Well, I, I suppose I would comment. Syria will come in. I suppose a comment to that would be back in the crypto world, uh, a, a simplistic approach to this, saying that you either encrypted stuff or they can get it. And a criticism that I made about 18 years ago was that this wasn't how the world actually worked. That first, almost all privacy compromises were abuse of authorized access by insiders. Government giving the police access to the whole database of medical records, for example, without control by warrants. And, and second, that most of the rest was traffic data rather than content. 
a traffic data, as we now know, is much more valuable than content. And there are fairly good reasons why that's still likely to be available in a very large number of cases. Um, now, sure, there are OPSEC things you can do. You can you and all your mates can open Gmail accounts, make sure you always use HTTPS, leave the thing in drafts, blah, blah, blah. The terrorists have done all this stuff. It doesn't make much difference because that kind of offset control is quite frankly beyond the resources um, of even trained intelligence personnel to do it competently and consistently. As for teenagers from Bradford who get on the jihad thing, forget it. It's not going to happen. So, um, realistically, the spooks will continue to whine about the world going dark, and in fact it's going brighter and brighter, and the whole thing becomes a, you know, an asymmetric information game where people end up not trusting anybody else. And it's within that context that we can foresee rising levels of public distrust and, um, you know, quite justified questions of what does local government mean if Cambridgeshire City Council doesn't control urban surveillance, and if Cambridge University can't offer at least a semi-safe environment for students from nasty and savage governments where you can say things here that would get their heads cut off at home. If we can't do that by means of technology, then do we have to have a rule in universities that everybody must check their mobile phone at the door when they come in, as you have to do when you visit Samsung or Buckingham Palace or the British Home Office? I take it by the government like mine. <laughs> I was thinking of places like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. Well, we do have the death penalty. But you normally don't execute American students for uh, criticizing the government while they're in Cambridge. No, <laughs> sure. They might start. Don't give them ideas. Right. Uh, I was just thinking uh, after Bruce's talk about surveillance and I, I was thinking about vaccination drives for some reason that uh, you know vaccination even if the disease risk is only in a subset of the population and the, the rest of the population will never be exposed to it but you go for a complete vaccination across across the nation and in terms of you said the problem is a political one so one of changing rhetoric and, and, and in that sense uh, making it into a disease or, or, or whether that has any advantage or whether uh, disease-based models have, have been used to analyze this. I mean, they have and people have talked about it. You talk about encryption in terms of herd immunity, that if everyone does it then, then people who need it are protected. There are lots of rhetoric you can use. Nothing seems to trump fear. I mean, I can get on stage with someone from the intelligence community and they will say, open quote, terrorists will kill your children, close quote. And everything I say afterwards is irrelevant, right? Because that just hits at a lower cognitive level than, than any more abstract cost-benefit, societal harms nonsense I, I say. And, and that's why I really think fear is, is the important driver. And I think it's cyclical. I mean, we can look back at, in the United States, the Red Scare, look back at, at Japanese internment, and, and talk about how ridiculous that was. I mean, we can say that was just crazy. This is but this is different. And, and until this is not different, and if, when this becomes not different, you know, I have a theory that there's like a 30-year life cycle here, that, that you know, this is sort of the average career of your civil servant. Something happens, right, in the, in the 70s, we had lots of reforms, everyone forgets that, you have a whole new generation of, of people, and suddenly you're doing the same things again. So nothing lasts forever, 
Except the earth and sky, sorry. <laughs> I'm curious, if, if, a, if somebody, a scaremonger says, terrorists will kill your children, and you say, but yes, not nearly as many as will be killed by cars. Yeah, but all deaths are not created equal. <laughs> that means there's lots of, of evidence yeah. of that. Right. That, that, that doesn't, I, I do. I do that. It doesn't work. Some sort so, of so, 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 should we try and scaremonger in return? Uh, one, one of the conclusions that you can draw from the network effects and intelligence argument um, is that we are creating a global intelligence architecture, right. which will last perhaps for many, many centuries. And when Britain ran the world from 1815 to 1914, we built lots of architecture. We invented stock markets, railways, and we invented the international network of cables, which is now Britain's main contribution um, to, to the intelligence theme. Because modern fiber cables are laid where previous phone cables were, which are laid where old Victorian telegraph cables were, because the cable companies own the real estate at both ends. And in a similar way, the intelligence architecture that we're creating nowadays um, is likely to be around in 50 or 100 years' time when America is no longer top dog. And so we can say to Mr. Obama that what you do to a farmer in the Punjab today will be what the ruler of China does to your grandchildren in 50 years' time, and what the ruler of India does to your great-great-grandchildren in 100 years' time. Is that the scaremongering line that would actually work in DC? You're shaking your head. Uh, yeah. It's too far away. Otherwise, people would solve global warming by now. We don't care about that. It's true. And, and, America, and America is exceptional anyway. And the American empire is not going to fall. No empire believes they're going to fall. Uh, That's right. The British empire did not believe it was going to fall until it fell. Someone never said. Yeah. Someone never said on the British empire. What I call it's presentism. We are focused on the interests of the present. We can do the next harvest. Generally, that's about it. That's about right. Well, you know, especially in one advantage to the NSA shrinking is that Peter it addresses some of the actual concerns that you have. The fact that they're building, um, that they need all of these untrustworthy consultants because they've grown so immense. And if they're serious about, oh no, what are we going to do four years from now? They, you know, the NSA started a. Uh, scholarship program, right? You guys know the C-A-E-C-A-R program? Do you know how many students, how many students are we funding this year on this scholarship program? Does anybody like to guess? None. Zero. They zeroed that budget out so they can afford to hire more, you know, consultants to listen to my phone calls. So, you know, it's the same, in some extent, it's the same answer you give AT&T and you give other companies. If you think things are radically going to change in four years, and I will tell you, you I think your, you know, your, your points about the larger IT culture are correct, but the people who are coming into my master's program are mostly from Indiana. I mean, if you want to hire people in the NSA that are going to be not of the Silicon Valley culture, they have a budget line to do it with. They have never asked for an increase in that budget line, and they are not funding additional students. So, you know, I, I cannot save the NSA from itself. Sure. Oh, I've got a question. Our beloved Chief Medical Officer, Dame Sally Davis, says by 2020 or 2050, depending on how much she's a it would be illegal not to take drugs to a doctor's prescribes because um, antibacterials are becoming ineffective because you're giving the course of them and you stop when you become better rather than you stop when you 
they get rid of the bacteria. So the bacteria are evolving to be resistant to all the drugs, and we're going to run out of drugs, and it's a disaster. Can you repeat, the, can you repeat the name? So, this pill is made by a company called Proteus, and you have looked at it. It's got a chip embedded in it, and when it gets wet in your stomach, it starts transmitting. And the reason Proteus are making this is because they can sell it to pharmaceuticals to check compliance. <laughs> Is it? What was the name of the There's a great um, science fiction book. Um, well, it, it, uh, David and I disagree. He, he thinks it, he, he thinks it's great. I think it falls short of great in one respect. But, uh, uh, Ken McLeod's Intrusion. Um, anybody's interested in that concept? It's very well worked out in Ken McLeod's Intrusion, where they have a fix. And it's called the fix for many of the um, ills that we suffer now that is taken by pregnant women. And this is about a woman who, now in that world, they have um, get outs for people who have religious reasons not to take the fix. And part of the debate is whether somebody who isn't driven by a religious reason can nevertheless refuse to take the fix when they're pregnant. Um, this I is mean, not this science fiction, there are women in jail now in the states for failing to follow their doctor's orders i mean this is not this is not 20 years from now this is tennessee on tuesday at the moment at the moment the, 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 i mean kevin clyde's point is is he's following this this logic that the, the, the uh, a lot a lot of a lot of uh, um the arguments in, in the law about this are based on the fact that you have a right over your own body, but you don't have a right over other people's bodies. And that's the argument about um, the uh, herd immunity and, and the efficacy of, uh, um, uh, of antibiotics. And it's the argument about pregnant women, about whether their rights to do what they want with their body and the effect on the thesis. Um, it's the same argument there. It, it's, you have rights over your own body still. But the difficulty comes when what you do affects another body, whether that's herd immunity, whether that's antibiotics, or whether it's pregnant women with diseases. And now, like Facebook knows I'm pregnant before I do, right? It gets good news for us. No, Facebook periodically decides I'm pregnant, and it is so irritating. And not, I don't take, don't take it personally. Well, at least, not, at least Facebook isn't deciding I'm pregnant, but that's because I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> I, I think a missing piece of this discussion is evolving cultural norms. So, I mean, yeah, so you know, from polling, it's clear that most of the population just doesn't really care about drones. They don't really care so much about the NSA scooping up data. Um, and rather than you know looking at that and saying, well, everyone's just you know ignorant or naive, um, maybe they've just bought into this you know the value proposition that you know government's taking care of me and that's the new cultural norm. And if that is the case, um, how much of this might be an intractable problem? Perhaps it's um, down to the fact that people become more skillful um, at using the methods pioneered by this community. Almost everybody wants to be as inconspicuous as possible when they do wrong, whether it's cyber criminals or drone operators or whatever. Terrorists, of course, want to be as conspicuous and annoying as they can possibly be, and they're getting fairly good at that. And, and there's nothing in the middle. <laughs> 
on, on that point, I mean, the, the whole issue of publicity is another one here as well, because we're, we're, we're entering a culture of extreme publicness. Mm-hmm. So that's another side of that too. Right, I mean, if that's, you know, if, you know, if, if that just, you know, signifies a new cultural shift, it seems like, you know, focusing on how to you know, reverse the culture to, you know, where it was previously might not be the best use of resources. One hand to change the subject, two fingers if you really want to follow on the previous thread. <laughs> now we get it complicated. Four fingers. No. <laughs> One, Are we two. Reading? One, two. So I have a question for John and John. I may have misunderstood you, but I'm going to a UMF authorization of use of military force, and you said that, or I understood you said that because there were no troops on the ground, it was easy to grant this authorization. So, it, the, the suggestion is that um, that when the authorization for the use of military force was passed after 9-11, it was, uh, it was just for um, folks uh, or people of, uh, who were responsible for the attacks of 9-11, but it was expanded um, either nine or ten years later. Um, it was written broadly at the time. Well, it, it, but, it, but the wording was shifted about ten years later to, to talk about affiliated um, affiliated uh, people, uh, not just the people responsible for the attacks. That broadening, I, I, I don't think that, what I'm suggesting is that there might be a correlation between the broadening out, the mission the issue of machine creep and the technologies that we use to execute those missions. So in other words, if we had uh, men and women on the ground, would we be as uh, willing to pursue broad missions? And the suggestion would be probably not. Right. I, I seem to perceive when you said the correlation between the fact that we're not troops on the ground and the fact that the authorization of military forces going for more easy. I was wondering, well, what about when you send an intercontinental ballistic missile that was not troops on the ground that arrived on that? Right. But it, so the intercontinental, so what's different about drones, however, is the language that we use, that it's clean, so that it's ethical, wise. Yeah, I mean, that this is some of the rhetoric that was it was used around uh, the drone strikes. Um, that it's uh, ethical, wise, prudent. Um, I don't think you have the same rhetoric about continental ballistic missiles. Does that make sense? That got a number of reactions down here. I'm going to yeah. Uh, so I think drones are interesting in that respect, in that you. As something gets cheaper, I mean, drones are cheaper than flying a plane and dropping a bomb, and not you don't just save money, you get this difference in kind. And uh, I think drones are the first instance of warfare where you don't need broad acceptance from the population. Right? Something that changed uh, really with the invention of gunpowder and standing armies, that you needed the population on your side to wage war, might be coming to an end in sort of the near science fiction future as we can do more of these things from remote control from small groups and 
population doesn't have to know, doesn't have to care, doesn't even have to agree. Right. Well, those are cheaper, especially now because you don't have to fly the airplane all the way to Afghanistan because you don't have the news at home. Oh, the soldier has been killed. But and cheaper means not not just you save money, but you do more of it, and it becomes different, right? Ubiquitous surveillance isn't just cheaper; it's fundamentally different. And there's, there's also the issue that um, a lot of the costs move from revenue to capital. In medieval warfare, you had to get your whole population get the pipes to march. But nowadays, you send a, a, a missile that costs 30,000 bucks. But the, the NSA infrastructure that, that guides it, I mean, Prism alone uses companies with over a trillion dollars of market cap. So again, what we see is the, the tech, marginal costs to go, capital costs to up, monopoly, etc. So we have one couple more comments, and we'll get to Diego. Um, I'm reminded of, of one of the things Shannon talked about, which is the, uh, uh, the senator carry, not presidential, which is the other carry, um, okay. is that when they were in Vietnam and they saw what they had done, there was eventually, um, it comes out, and eventually we see what their personal reaction was. One of the things I think that's missing with drones that we haven't talked about so far is the fact that often we're not actually seeing the aftermath. Um, the people who are doing it are not seeing the aftermath. Um, the sniper sees the aftermath. But the drone dies when it, get, when it hits. And there is an issue there. I think there is a difference between a sniper and a drone pilot in that the drone pilot does not see the aftermath yet. But they do. I think worse yeah. than that, the kids flying the drones spend their childhood playing blowing up the They actually do see quite a bit of the. Is there slaughter planes? So I'm going to be completely contrary here. Uh, it, I think that the drones are not replacing, you know, land invasions. I think the drones are replacing things that we used to do with very expensive and highly deniable CIA activities. Now the Washington Post can say, oh, the CIA back coup that put Pinochet in, and it can say, oh, well, when the CIA forced Kenyatta to eat his words and instituted decades of... Um, or, you know, or, you know, we're, we're using that instead of drones, and they don't just go home to their spouses. They also go to their soccer games, and they go to the cafeteria. And that, you know, when you impact a, a significant number of people in a community, you've impacted that community. And they're walking, you know, maybe I'm, you know, I, I know that some people will think this is overly sympathetic, but I think some of those operators are walking wounded, and they are in the community. And you can't, and we can't deny it. Like when, you know, when these things were happening, the people who said, you know, the CIA is doing this in Kenya, the CIA is doing this in Chile, they were like, oh, you crazy, drug taken tinfoil hat lunatic. Uh, that in fact, maybe the drones are bringing home and making more, undeniable, that makes sense, some of the things we're doing. I mean, it's not all in one direction. But, come on, let's be realistic. Uh, World War One, left no family in Britain untouched. My great-uncle, for example, was killed at the Somme. And every every family in Britain suffered in this way from World War One. But who's suffering from uh, drone warfare? Maybe 500 families in Las Vegas who work at Creech Air Force Base. There's no scale there. There aren't enough votes to overturn even a mayor, you know, let alone the federal government. 
But I mean, who's the same thing? Is it replacing um, full-scale invasion, or is it replacing what used to be even more invisible CIA action? And that's an I don't think this. I don't think the CIA were very often um, blowing up weddings by the state. It's one of the issues with drones compared to what they used to with the CIA. I don't think the CIA used to blow yeah, up weapons by mistake. We have a couple more cute questions. I want to I want to get to them before the time runs out. Diego, please. No. Thank you. Uh, I just would have it's very interesting, but I would like to shift the debate to more to what Bruce has been talking about of the uh, massive violation of privacy and collection of big data, and uh, we seem to. Uh, Oscillate between uh, solutions that have to do with changing behavior or solutions that have to do with technological advances. As you were talking, I was thinking, wow, every time I use my mobile phone, they know where I am. You don't have to use it, they know it anyway. So I should buy 10 mobile phones and tie them to dogs, as many dogs as I You never know which one I'm using. So I was having this kind of nothing daydreaming. More seriously, isn't one way of uh, framing what I have is to think that we are generating uh, new resources which used to be private, used to be ours, and that now there are masses of these resources floating around. And what we don't have is a clear uh, legislation of property rights. Who owns this stuff? Right? Which is what Ross was saying, talking about, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, we start collecting data on what people do in Cambridge, who's going to uh, use this? So it's a question of, you know, I never, I don't believe really like I can hear myself saying this, but we need some more. So that uh, we well, need that page. But that's, but that's what my talk <laughs> partly about is. Ownership, and I don't just mean ownership of the device, I know spreading out that conception into ownership of the data. People do write about data ownership. I, I'm not a big fan of, of property rights here. I think that, uh, that property is a bad way of looking at data in general, that a, a rights regime, where, where the rights and responsibilities are, are, are more suited for what's going on. And, and, but there are people who write about about uh, Jaron Lanier has a really persuasive book on data and property and that you should be able to to buy and sell it. My guess is that the property rights aren't going to work in a lot of the a lot of the different applications. The reason things subtle, but pe people do write about about this. But um, say, wouldn't Chris just be judges in charge of, of authorizing <laughs> That'd be better. Yes, that's better than secret courts. Consider them dead, unless a judge says, at least we have some. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Say, say that. So nobody owns the fact. And, and, and it's worse than the, here in the UK, there isn't even a secret court. It's just ministers that get to say, no more than I do about what's going on here, but it's, it's, it's US at least has a secret court, which is kind of embarrassing. Probably a secret cross here and there too, but they're for a different purpose. Um, yes, it's, it's difficult. Uh, property rights are sometimes used to enforce privacy. In Germany, for example, medical privacy is conventionally enforced by the fact that your medical notes are the copyright of your doctor. But that um, theory never caught on here. And um, 
people who can't change the practices of an entire profession. Simil similarly, mm -hmm. even if I were to write copyright Ross Anderson at the bottom of all my emails, which is uh, unnecessary since they're my copyright in any case, how as a practical matter could I enforce that? And what about the copyright of all the people who wrote to me and the emails that they wrote, and what about all the copied stuff underneath? It becomes intractable very quickly. So, so, so yeah, I mean, this is why I was saying, why don't we instead try and visualize the world that we'd like to be in, you know, if for a moment we could forget what's feasible in engineering terms, and think in terms of magic, do you, do you really want Harry Potter's invisible cloak, or is that too big a moral hazard? Uh, well, if you, if you want a good science fiction treatment to get in this, you have uh, Hanu Rajani Amy's Gelos in um, the, uh, the Quantum Thief. Um, so anyone, anyone who's read that I, um, will probably agree that, that that is a very interesting, very recent treatment of the concept of how you have um, negotiable privacy. Um, and there, if you own a space, you are the one who sets the privacy, but it's clearly marked and you can see before you enter that space. There are some public spaces where you, you are clearly indicated you have no privacy. There are, and, but in general public spaces, you have the privacy from whoever you choose and those people you admit can see you and whether you're, you're visible to them without them being visible to you or you say, I will see you if you will see me. Well, what was the name of that book? Uh, the Quantum Thief by Hanu Rajaniemi. They, uh, well, this, these kind of technical techniques are neat. I mean, they get they, um, they're, they're a sort of advanced flavour of what happens if you go to a, a meeting at the home office and you have to put your phone in a locker as you go in the door because they, they don't want uncontrolled taking of photographs. Um, but they're perhaps not sufficient for practical purposes because our law, for example, decided that the Daily Mirror infringed uh, 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 Naomi Campbell's property rights when they photographed the meeting of Narcotics Anonymous. So the idea that a celebrity could be standing on the street in broad daylight and be photographed by a paparazzo on the street in broad daylight and he still brought the law which may be a bit alien to an American law, you know, with First Amendment and all the rest of it, but it is actually the law here and people are happy with it. Can you get emergent properties like that arise out of expectations rather than necessarily well, the recent, recent court case um, on the uh, potential revenge port. Has anybody else seen this? Uh, on my um, there was a court, a, a, a German court, um, which allowed the petition of uh, a woman oh, who yes. uh, requested the court to instruct her ex-boyfriend to delete naked pictures of her. And it wasn't that he had uploaded them as revenge porn, it was simply that he had these photos and that she wanted the courts to order them, order him to delete them on the grounds that potentially he might upload them and then the cat was out of the bag. But potentially, but also there was the, the, there's also the issue being discussed on that is, well, you know, the relationship has now ended, does he anymore have a right to own and personally view new photographs of her? Well, suppose you could have an emergent social um, convention for example, uh, when the late Jackie Kennedy went out shopping in Manhattan, she would put on sunglasses as a, as a signal that she didn't want to be photographed by the paparazzi, one that was often ignored. And but we've seen celebs turning up to policy meetings, certainly female celebs tend to do the same thing. Could you end up having something that was A, a social convention, and B, perhaps enforced by non-evil software makers, is that if Google Glass saw Lady wearing shades, um, then that wouldn't be recorded or broadcast or... So, so it's a social version of the rain. 
So if I'm a, so, a, so, a social version, of, a social version of the Ring of Guy is filled with some mild. A more social version of do not track flag. If you, if you saw the Privacy International T-shirt that had a copyright notice on it some ten years ago, <laughs> um, oh, you know, to, to all owners of CCTV cameras, this is my copyright, and you may not. People have fooled around at the edges of this for some time, but perhaps it's time to start thinking about it a bit more seriously. If you know, five percent of the population will be wearing Google Glass in five years' time. But I think we've run the time. Well, world is a better place if we can report the cops, right? So yes. But you, you don't, if the moment you put that the cops will all wear shape. But that, that's fundamentally the power differential. The, re, the reason that's true is the power differential. Always think of it in terms of power. And, 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 that, and that's solved by having the law which says that policemen on duty may not wear the shapes. And we have that law in the UK. Now it was violated in the uh, in some of the uh, the G20 riots a couple of years ago. The police must wear their visible ID number, and it, it, there was a big scandal about some of them were covering it up um, during those actions. But it was a scandal. They also have conveniently for Yes. Um, but, it was, but it was a scandal. That, they fall off all the time. You can't keep them on. It's really hard. I think we have reached. I think we are reaching the point of adjournment. Um, Ross should have the last word, but I would like to say thank you very much, and to the other organizers.